broadcasting live on AM 950, the progressive talk of Minnesota, as uh, the, uh, of course, of course, WCPT 820 Chicago's progressive talk in the evenings. It is the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. Matt Patrick here today, uh, coming up in the four o'clock hour. Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer, as well as Michael Broadcorp, not only on the Iowa caucuses a little bit, but as well. Uh, Vikings football, and we'll talk about that then. But uh, right now, it's me and Patrick. Hello, Patrick. Welcome back, Matt. Um, uh, obviously, it's quite chilly out, and unfortunately, my car heater has not been working properly. It picked the coldest week of the year to do that. Oh, it was when it was extra crispy. Oh, that's that's <laughs> right. de- that's delightful. Uh, yeah, I it was a little bit of a, an, an abrupt jar in there. I got a lot to talk about today. When, when For the folks in Chicago, when I do come back from a trip, generally one of the things I like to do is talk a little bit about this and kind of give you some impressions and some thoughts that I have uh, in regards to stuff like this. But I was down in uh, South Carolina. My mom turned 80 in December. I couldn't get down there for then. Uh, for the birthday at that point. Uh, so we made a point of on the MLK weekend of who could get down there. We were going to have a little party, which we did, and it was good fun. And I was, of course, I was in the South, so food, yum. And uh, it was just a smidge warmer. It is funny to go someplace where if you've never been to, you know, I, I was in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is just up the coastline from Hilton Head. And uh, I was in Beaufort, uh, which is, and of course, and, and then just on the other side of Hilton Head is Savannah, Georgia. And so I was down there. If you've never been to the South, it is flame on Johnny Storm come summer, summertime. It is god awful hot. I mean, ah. <laughs> I was walking through that town. I, I the hottest. I mean, gosh, it might be one of the hottest times I've ever walked around in this country. At least it felt like it because in in once again in Arizona it just doesn't get humid like it does. Usually it doesn't get humid like that down in Arizona when you're over in South Carolina. South Carolina it was like 97 degrees and like 90 percent humidity and it was just god awful. And I just remember you saying to myself, "And whose idea was it?" to have heavy-duty Southern food today. And it was mine. It was, you know, I'm guilty as charged. Uh, ate a ton of bad-for-me food, and it was, uh, yeah, yeah, it was. So you go down there now when it's, you know, kind of in the cold spell here. And they're actually very concerned because coming up this weekend, not now, but I think it's on Saturday, either Saturday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, it's going to be 23 degrees down there. And for them, that is unbelievable. And a lot of things are going to die because it is just not used to temperatures like that. Now, still, it's a prime example of climate change before anyone comes and says, it got cold in winter, Matt. Where's your climate change now? Well, um, I don't want to speak for Chicago per se, but for Minneapolis, St. Paul, our, our coldest weather generally is somewhere in the area of minus 20. We got to minus 13, and this is probably it. We're going to be in the 40s. There's a decent chance we're going to be in the 40s in the Twin Cities next week. You know, you have northern Minnesota where the coldest temperatures generally on average in any given year is minus 40, and they're not even going to get close to that. So, yeah, it's it's changing, and it's changing a lot. So, But down there... It is. It's a little bit of a concern. They are walking around at 50 degrees in winter jackets and hats, and it is just precious. It is precious to watch. I was in shorts. No, I did have a sweatshirt on. I didn't go just t-shirt shorts. I mean, I'm not Canadian. 
<laughs> like you can't. Canada, I like you. You're good people up there. Uh, but I, I mean, it was kind of one of those things where it was, I mean, I, I, I was at least had a sweatshirt on, but I was, was still wearing shorts because it was 55. One day it was 63. It was nice. I had no problem with it. Food, spectacular. Uh, it's the low country. And if you don't know low country cuisine, it's fantastic. It's kind of a mishmash of a lot of different things. The Southern style cooking. Um, it's what's called Gullah cooking, which is a traditional native island, uh, African-American infused cooking of the, the, uh, islands out on the uh, coastal areas. It's fantastic. Um, then of course, just great seafood because you're on the coast and you get good seafood. That's not been near the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> so you get, you get good stuff. That's not a, running an octane level. Fantastic. I've got a I've got a fantastic picture I'm going to share with you, everyone, Patrick, a little bit later on. A basket of sausages, which, by the way, sounds like a, a reference to most women's DMs. But I mean, it's actually just no, it was uh, I was at the smokehouse in Port Royal, man. Basket of sausages. You're welcome. And they were good, man. <laughs> oh, God. I ate like a horse. I did. I am. I'm a whore. I am. It's who it's who I am. I'm not going to shy not back away from it and shy away from it. Uh, it, it was fantastic, and it, it is just it, it is a decent part of the country to go to, because one of the things that people, if you're from the north and you're saying to yourself, "Man, I I don't mind going down south," but God, have you have you seen the the MAGA folks? I mean, they're a little intense. Here's the great part about this stretch. And really, it's from Charleston, South Carolina, down to Savannah, Georgia. Don't get me wrong. It still is somewhat conservative. Nancy Mace is their representative. Yeah, they're not. They're not. I know a lot of people who are, you know, licking their chops and voting her out of office. But the one of the things which you'll run into is a more liberal it's it's definitely the most liberal part of south carolina it is definitely more you know you don't see as many confederate flags there are a few sure you go through the town of buford there's none and the reason why is that buford was taken out of the civil war very early after fort sumter fell the troops didn't go back north they just sailed into buford harbor and took over buford south carolina and so it was never in the war and so you go through buford south carolina and you see that gorgeous south carolina flag which is just a pretty flag uh, the palmetto tree and the crescent on the blue are oh, just wonderful. And then you see a lot of Marine Corps flags because Paris Island is right over there. And so you see Paris Island. Uh, and, and so you have that, but you don't have that overwhelming, let's talk about how the South will rise again. You, know, you don't have that. Thank God. Thank God. Um, it doesn't mean it's not prevalent. And I wanted to share a story of the flight down. Uh, took American out of MSP, threw, flew to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and then flew from Charlotte down to Charleston. And, you know, a, a fairly standard flight. I flew out early in the morning on Thursday of last week and, and, you know, got down there. And then it's really just a puddle jumper, really. I mean, you are not going that far. It's a 30-minute 30, 30 flight. As a matter of fact, it almost takes you longer at Charleston, South Carolina airport to get to the runway because it's a part of a military base or a Boeing facility. And you have to go basically, you know, drive halfway to where your destination is. It is, it's, it's not a big long flight to get from Char Charlotte, North Carolina to Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm on this plane and 
also on this plane was the Drexel women's basketball team who are heading to College of Charleston to play them in a basketball game. And yeah, and big salute to Drexel. Very nice, you know, very nice crew there. They're getting on the plane, and there's this guy from Texas who is in all sorts of Texas, and he's just talking all sort. Let me tell you about Texas, and oh yeah, I'm into barbecue and all these things. And he starts off by just being the jerk because Drexel, if you don't know, Drexel University is uh, Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken. They're out of Philadelphia. And they're coming through. And he starts trash-talking Philly. Now, once again, mind you, this is a basketball team that plays at Drexel, but hardly any of them probably come from the Philadelphia metro area. That's not how Division I, Division II basketball recruits anymore. But he says, and this is verbatim, well, I'm from Texas where we don't have mass shootings. And I actually said loud enough to where everyone could hear me, what? <laughs> what? Um, you, uh, I get it. You're trying to get a slam on Pennsylvania. You Yankees in the North. Dude, you just had Uvalde. Come on. Now, granted, Texas isn't as bad as Louisiana and some of the many other states where gun violence is really atrocious, but it's on the worst half in this country. So I don't know if I, I get it. You, you've been watching. Clearly, the impression I got from the guy was this is one of those guys that's been watching a lot of far-right Fox News and, you know, Philadelphia, it's chaos in the streets. You know, Chicago knows, Minneapolis, St. Paul knows. It's just what Republicans do when it comes to a big city because it's wholesome American values out in meth world. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, <sighs> you guys got a meth problem out there. You know, you guys got to clean that up. Anyway. So the guy starts talking and he's talking to this guy from South Carolina and they're just going back and forth. And, you know, they start talking kind of, you know, you know nothing outrageous, nothing out of line per se. Gun guy starts talking. I got this one friend over in Texas who's a flat earther. And he says, I can't believe it. I mean, come on, man. You look through a telescope. They're all round. It's clear we're round. I mean, I don't know what it is. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, maybe I, this guy misrepresented me. He just was, you know, bad karma with his attempted uh, the slam on Philadelphia with the Drexel women's basketball team. He, he then starts getting into this, well, you know, I'm not exactly the biggest fan of Trump, but it's clear the Democrats have been going after him ever since he was elected. And so, you know, they, they, they just keep going after him and they don't relent. And I don't think that that's right. And let's talk about Hunter Biden for a second. Hunter Biden, he took a gun into the airport. If I was me, I'd be in jail right now. And, you know, kind of was one of those things where he's trying to, you could tell he was trying to do that right wing. I'm trying to add some credence. It was at this point I decided, okay, enough of this. I'm going to sleep for 20 minutes or so on this flight to try to get a little downtime. Close my eyes. When I wake up, the first thing I hear from, the, it was from the guy from South Carolina. You know, he, he, he basically says, um, you know, I think that we're all living in a simulation. And I'm like, what in 
the hell happened to that conversation? Living in a simulation? How how in the world? And I could just tell I'm in, in what, 10, 15 minutes of me sleeping. I missed them just, you know, kind of giving up the ghost and any kind of any facade or kind of narrative that went, I'm kind of one of these new. Nope. We're, we're, it's all false flag operations. And, you know, we, we, we got to get ready for a civil war. And, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I could not get away from them fast enough out there. Okay. Some more thoughts of the South. When I do come on back, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil show. It is the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday. And once again, thanks to Todd Mickelson for filling in for me last Thursday, Friday. We did Best of Yesterday. Hope you enjoyed that, that great interview with the Penn Center on MLK Day. Uh, but thanks to Todd. We really, pre- I really appreciate when you do get the chance to fill in for me. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. I want to talk about two other things about the South before I get to the Iowa caucuses here later on this hour. Um. The first thing I want to address, if I may, is something that we all hear from conservatives who in the North um, who basically – that are somehow burdened and, and cursed and you know, begrudged to live and have to work in such magnificent cities as Chicago and Minneapolis, St. Paul. You know, it is you – know, oh, boo freaking who, dude. You, I hope you enjoy the food. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where it's – you hear that a lot, and we all hear it. We've all, you know, gotten an earful of, if I get the chance, I'm moving to a state where the Republicans are in charge and I can be free. Now, quick, let pardon me for a quick second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> bon voyage. I I want to share with you um a few different things about what you're in store for if you head down into a southern state where the Republicans are in charge because I have spent a lot of my time. I lived as a kid in rural Georgia, up by Lake Lanier, uh, when I was a, when in the early '80s, and that was my first real exposure to the South. And it was like, wow, yeah, no. Um, I have gone down numerous times. I, I spent uh, my parents lived for a while in Mississippi, and I I went down there. A few times, and you, it, it, it was it was stark to move to one of these southern states because one of the things you still see the repercussions of the post Civil War era is the mentality that we won't help the black community in any way, shape, or form after the Civil War when the slaves were freed. One of the main tenants of the white culture was fine you're you're free but don't expect us to help you in any capacity it's one of the reasons why when you go into southern states you wonder why are the roads in this town so bad 
Well, they're bad in the majority of the town. They're bad in usually in the Main Street area. They're generally not the best over uh, in the, the black community. But, you know, if you go to the wealthy white community, well, all of a sudden they got really nice roads. And the reason why is because they don't pay taxes to maintain their roads. They actually pay a private company. Far more money, by the way, than they would have to if they just paid their taxes. They could maintain their roads nice and neat for a much lower cost. But because they feel as if that would benefit the black population and they don't want to do that, well, then they would rather pay a far more premium price for a private company to come in and maintain their roads for them. Looks nice, but you're paying for it. You see it in, in the school districts of the South all over the place where they, they basically they've gutted the funding for the school system. And the reason why is that, for the most part, the white population has, you know, moved into private schools or charter schools in the South where it's a basically a white school. And and they don't want to, to, to help people out. I mean, so there, there is that element of it where, you know, you may you, maybe you are a racist jackass. Maybe you are. And you say, I want to go down there because I want to be around my people. Well, that's fine. But just going to let you know you're going to have to pay extra for what you get in northern states for free, which is generally good quality schools, you know, road maintenance, basic maintenance like that. That's just stuff you're going to have to pay for. There's the other element of Republican areas of this country, which I've talked about numerous times, which is the the way that they have to threaten their own citizens. It's you get you. If you speed, you will get caught. We will catch you. We will find you. You will go to jail. Have you seen those signs? Those those are everywhere in the South. And it's not a joke, man. I mean, if you I mean, if you are one of these northern people that like to drive, you know, 10, 15 miles over the speed limit, yeah, you bet that's those days are over, you go to the south. Because I guarantee you, you'll be you you had better start paying attention to that speed limit because you get one or two miles over, all of a sudden you got the the the, the lights on behind you. But I want to give two different things that happened this last trip that I want to just share with you. That if, you, if you're one of these people that are like, oh, well, I want to go down there because things are so much better. Are they? Um, let's go with, first of all, one of the things that happened to my mom, unfortunately. And don't worry. Okay, I want to just preface this by saying everyone's fine. Minimum damage. But when those storms came through, that first storm, it took a tree down in her neighbor's yard and put it, 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 it kind of clipped the back of her house and it, you know, knocked out some windows on one side of the house and, you know, did some damage to the roof. Nothing that bad. And once again, everyone's fine. Things are going to get taken care of. Now, if you are in a sane world, I mean, and this is one of the reasons why you have to maintain your trees if you have property. And at least here in Minnesota, you've had to maintain your trees because, you know, if your tree goes down and hits someone else's house, you can be held culpable for it, especially if it's like a rotted tree that should have been taken down a long time ago. Not in the South. She'd already been informed that basically the culpability of the neighbor, even though that tree was rotted to the core, I actually went and took pictures of it. Even though that tree was rotted to the core, the culpability of that neighbor ends at their property line. Hence, they can take down a tree, which they were warned they needed to take down, and it can fall into your house and you have no recourse because the South Republican states that personal responsibility stuff they do, 
uh, it kind of sucks all the way uh, all around. I'll give you another one. My mom's like, can you take the garbage cans out on MLK Day? Her, her garbage pickup is usually on Monday. I said, well, no, you don't have garbage pickup tomorrow. It's MLK Day. She goes, oh, no, we do. <laughs> so, wait a second. You have garbage pickup? You have like municipal services on holidays? She, she had garbage pickup on New Year's Day. On New Year's Day, they had municipal garbage pickup. She said the only two days they give off are Christmas Day and on the 4th of July. And outside of that, they are work, you are working every other day. Labor Day, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving. There are no holidays, MLK Day included. So if you're one of these people that wants to go on out and you want to go on and 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 you know kind of get at one of those jobs, oh, well, I'm just going to go down there and I'll, I'll work, I'll, you know, I'll do work for municipal services. You, you live in the North, guess what? You get holidays off. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to have a three-day weekend on MLK Day weekend. You get that because we actually value workers a little bit up here versus down there where they clearly do not they honor you at all. That is just a, it is just, oh, it is bad. It is bad. But hey, we'll let it be a surprise for you. Head on down. Enjoy your new life. We'll see you in a year or so. We'll take a break. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Broadcasting in the evening here on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk on AM 950 in the Mothership at Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. It is the Matt McNeil Show. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. So I want to bring up something which I want to be very careful on how I bring this up because I do not want people implying in any capacity that I do not think racism is everywhere. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's been very eye-opening for myself since I, I, I've, I've talked a lot about this in the past. I, I used to be one of these people that would, you know, would, I would consider myself at one point a moderate. I remember going into the voting booths in 1992 and not really not knowing who I was going to vote for. And I do mean I could have voted for H.W. Bush or Ross Perot or Bill Clinton back then. I, in the early 2000s, my wife and I actually had a yard sign for Democrats for a Republican in our yard. I wouldn't do that today. Not a chance on the planet. Not a chance on the planet. And one of the things, and and part of this was I've become more aware of the world that's around me and how much of that world was created by a false white cloud that basically you know kept me stupid kept me kept me from seeing the true injustice to the african american population the hispanic population the native american population the lgbtq population uh the asian population the failures of our system and how they are still horribly in place and that racism is sadly alive and well. Now, are we making some strides? 
some, not a lot. It's a slow process. And it's something that has plagued this country and, and frankly, worldwide, really, if you want to know the truth about it. There's not a lot of places where there isn't an abundant form of racism in one way or the other. But we in the North as, as, you know, as well, I mean, it's obviously there's problems in the South, but in the North, you, you have it here too, mainly due to things like that, that, that we could go through. Let's, how many communities, especially black communities in this country, are in, in the city of Chicago, in the city of Minneapolis, St. Paul, how many black communities are still saddled with the burden of the redlining from a hundred plus years ago where banks just basically said, well, black people live there. Hence those property values are less the same redlining and property devaluation that allowed black entire black communities to get wiped off the map with the building of the interstate system. That, that, you know, that's where those, those roads went. They could take it. And in, and in some cases, it's comical how they went out of their way to twist and turn an interstate to make sure it took out every black neighborhood it could. We have undeniable funding issues for, for quality education and, and a white-based education model that doesn't seem to be the most effective for dealing with minority populations. Bluntly, it's one of the reasons why minority groups struggle to keep up with the white groups when it comes to reading and writing and science and all those things. We have the testing. We see it done. And no, by the way, charter schools generally not the answer. Sure, there's one or two good charter schools, but the vast majority of them actually score less. So it's not just one of those things where we just shift money from one place to the other and it's going to work. You need a wholesale different approach that's going to get a still quality education, but it's not just from a white European-centric perspective. You don't have quality jobs in a lot of black communities by design. You don't, heck, in this country today, we, 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 we don't even, in minority areas, have good grocery stores. For God's sakes. The poor minority communities have to go three buses over to go to a grocery store to get fruits and vegetables. And yeah. There's a lot of racist people out there. I try to be a good person. I try. I can only I, I can only change myself and I can't speak for anything else. I can all I can do is look out there and say, holy crap, there's a lot of racism that's still out there. And so it's comical when I hear, especially Republicans or white any white person say, Well, we're doing a lot. We we had a black president, Matt. Come on. There's no racism left. Shut up, you arrogant jackass. Yes, there is. And you're just desperate to find some sort of, of, of line that you can cross and say, see, I don't have to worry about this anymore. So stop it. There is a tendency, and, and, and it, this, the fact I saw this, I was on the plane yesterday. I was coming back, and before we took off, I was you know, scrolling through the old TikTok. Yeah, I'm not exactly not exactly spending my time wisely. And there's this white guy, white guy, who goes out with his list of most racist cities 
in the country. Oh, okay. This, this, maybe this is an individual who's studied the, the, these communities. No, it just, it was just some dude who just say, here's what I see the racism. And it had some, it had some shockers on there. You know, Fresno, California was on there. I, I didn't realize it was a problem there. But as I'm coming from the South and I'm coming back North, two cities showed up on this list and you can guess where Chicago and Minneapolis, St. Paul. As a matter of fact, we were both on the, we weren't the worst, but I think Chicago landed on three on his list and Minneapolis, St. Paul was four on his list. And it's a narrative that you hear from people that these cities are more racist than other places. And then they throw out, and once again, I'm not trying to be white guy authoritative. I'm just making an observation on what you're saying. You're saying because in the South, they're more straightforward with it. They're more in your face with the racism. That that is somehow better than up in Minnesota or in Illinois because they don't, it's not in your face. And, and so I want to talk about that for a second. As someone who is, once again, just having come off an airplane from the South, who has spent a substantial amount of time in the South, not just in tourist areas like drinking in Nashville or, you know, trying to do a, uh, you know, a microbrew tour in, in Atlanta or something of that nature. No, I've actually spent a substantial amount of time in Mississippi and in South Carolina and in Georgia. And I find it, and once again, I mean, everyone's individual story is their individual story. So it's not fair to me to not to, to say to someone, well, that, it, it, that can't be true for you because they could have had a horrible situation in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or in Chicago with racism. And that's very valid. I mean, my God, Minneapolis, let's talk about the police for a little bit here. It's it, it, <laughs> the Native American population and the African American population have some le very legitimate complaints against the Minneapolis Police Department and the undeniable level of racism that has been out there for many years, detailed greatly by the Department of Justice scathing report against the Minneapolis Police Department that was released last year. So if that happened to you in Minneapolis, I can easily understand why you might want to say, well, Minneapolis, I think, is far more racist than other, any place. I can see that. But stepping back from individual circumstances, I just can't comprehend how anyone can look at these cities in Chicago and Minneapolis, St. Paul, and see and say, well, it's, it's, there's more racism there than in the South. Because as you even yourself will admit, well, the, the, it's not that the racism isn't there in the South. It's everywhere in the South. But it's in your face, which I guess gives you some level of solace on this, that somehow that makes it better. And I'm not, once again, this is not about saying that Minneapolis, St. Paul, Chicago, the northern communities don't have racism. My God, we could write an entire collection of books on Boston, for God's sakes. 
No, there is undeniable and and inexcusable racism that happens in northern states. But is it worse than in the South? Segregated neighborhoods with gates. I mean, you you actually have segregated neighborhoods down the South. And I'm not saying you don't have some of that up in, in, in some of these northern climes. You have gated communities and stuff like this. But it's not like the cottage industry of the South where the entire concept is we're going to make a we're going to make a development we're going to have 100 houses in there and we're going to have a gate on it and it's going to be for a certain kind of people that's it's going to be for certain people as one person told me in the south that that they'll that what they'll do is to prevent from just having a 100% you know white ownership rate they'll have like one minority family in the community but they are stuck in the way back away from everyone else kind of in their own area and that's what they use as their insulation but undeniably considering the population of the south considering the 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 racial makeup of the south it is it's it's a pretty much a whites only example institution and you see this a lot of places segregated schools i talked about this briefly with with the kind of the concept, if you move to the South, just anticipate you're probably going to have either a subpar public school system or a you're going to have to pay for your kid to go to a private school because that's the kind of the way they do it down there to prevent from white taxpayers from having to even give any money to the public school system so that, God forbid, a black person is good. And if there is, for goodness sakes, a, a black person who's really good at a sport, well, all of a sudden there's a scholarship to get them into that school. But only so many. And once again, I'm not saying that this, this to a point doesn't exist up in northern climes. Of course it does. But it's not nearly as freaking prevalent as it is down there. I talked about as well the minimal investment into the black communities. Roads are in, in, in much worse shape. And not only that, but the white south has placed confederate freaking statues just so they can remind you of what they did and the way things used to be. And for many years, many of the Southern states had the Confederate flag on their flag. And as a matter of fact, Georgia still has the original Confederate flag as their state flag, for God's sakes. Look it up. They've got segregated churches down there. There's there's the white Baptist church, and then there's the black Baptist church. And if a black family will go to a white Baptist church not knowing, it's not like they're rude, but they'll say, I'll tell you what, you want the church down the street. We got Marvin over here. He's going to give you a ride over to that church, okay? Okay. And they do that in the South. You've got segregated grocery stores. I have been there. I said, I'm going to run on down the street to the Piggly Wiggly. Oh, that's the one that the, the, the African-American community uses. I don't care. It's a grocery store. Down there, it matters. Well, we go to Publix. Well, you can. I'm just going to go over here because it's, it's a lot closer. I remember when my mother was at a polling position a place and she went in there and the, the, the two different polling places, the one in the white community in Mississippi, 
tons of tons of volunteers, tons of, you know, of 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 stations, pencils, and all this stuff. You go to the black community; they had one pencil and no hardly any volunteers, and a line out the door. Racism is everywhere. I am not going to once again. My whole this whole rant is not about whether or not racism exists. It does, and we need to fix that. But if I hear another person tell me, oh, things are much worse someplace else than in the South, come on, man. You're, you are intentionally overlooking the, the societal and institutional racism that exists in every single level. Take a break. It's the Matt McNeil Show. It is the Matt McNeil Show. Stay warm out there, everyone, all right? Now, once again, I'm not saying there isn't racism. I'm I'm being very clear. No, there is unacceptable racism everywhere. That is for sure. But to imply that the South is somehow less racist than the North. Now, once again, individual stories, that's different. You had something bad happen to you? I completely understand what your your, your point of view is. But this general idea that the societal and institutional racism in the South is somehow more acceptable. I, I think the thing which is upsetting is you're never going to solve that problem if you just basically don't, you say, well, that, that's fine. That's just the way they are. And I, to a point, get the distrust of the white population. I'm, well, not to a point. I get the point. I, I get why there is distrust of the white population. I get that. And so that when it's not in your face, it makes it, it's a little more uncomfortable because you don't know where it's coming from. But my God, the South, the racism down there is just everywhere you look. And it really is, unfortunately. And there are places where it, it doesn't. And those places are magnificent and wonderful and colorful and bright and fun. But yeah, that's a lot of the South. It's, that's not a lot of the South. And so I just, yeah, 952-946-6205. It doesn't help when you have states which are really, really, really white, like Iowa. The caucus was yesterday. So before we all get all in the, oh, my yeah, the caucus, oh, Donald Trump, because there is a laziness, there is an absolute laziness to the media in this country when it comes to reporting on stuff like this, and I want to be very blunt, let me break this down for you. 56,000 total votes is what Trump got. 56,000 in the state of 3.1 million people, okay, in a country of 326 million people, and Iowa is the seventh least diverse state in the nation. West Virginia, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Montana, Kentucky, then Iowa just... Eakin past Wyoming and Utah. By, by the width of some Wonder Bread. Yeah, there it is. This is not a bellwether. I mean, Iowa Republicans and Iowa Democrats, for that matter, will always insist, this is a bellwether for America. Oh, no, it's not. It's a bellwether for white America. It's a bellwether for rural white America, too. And that's what it is. And this is why, you know, frankly, the luster has come on off the Iowa caucus is because, yeah, to, to act as if this is somehow a cross-section of America when it's one of the whitest states in the nation and only 56,000 people voted for Trump yesterday. 56! That's not exactly a ton of people voting for Donald Trump. 
56,000, actually, not 56 people, 56,000, you know. If we're rounding, it's going to go down, that's for sure. Um, the news media, just because they're lazy, does not want to present this. I mean, I've, I've seen a few pundits on some of the news outlets on MSNBC and CNN basically make the point, like, okay, before you start crowning him the next president, realize that this is Republicans only. He still, it was only still 56,000 people and it was rural Iowa. So I don't know if you necessarily can say squat about this. One of the things which is funny, though, and I do appreciate this being this video coming on out. If you've not seen it, it's a video of the voting process. Now, we should note Republicans, one of their main bellwethers of integrity is voting security. (laughs) That's what they scream about. The video um, it, it's basically if Iowa voters return their ballots, it's caused a stir. The clip that's gone viral, people can see be seen placing their caucus ballots in a high V grocery store paper bag being carried around by a sports hall by a voting official posted on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, this is by uh, WISN 12 reporter Matt Smith. The clip was led to questions being asked about the voting process in the Iowa caucuses, which took place yesterday with numerous social media users commenting on how unofficial and antiquated the process appears to be, according to X. Now, I'm going to just go skip down to um, the, the Republicans. Others took no issue with how votes were cast yesterday. Ray Templeton said, it was the same system we've used in the presidential election in November, writing, this is how it should be done in November. Paper ballots and voter ID. Okay. Let me just take that point first. You want to do this? Okay. I don't know how your ballots are going to look. The ballots I'm going to have are going to have uh, president, senator, in Klobuchar. She's up for re-election up here in Minnesota. Uh, I'm going to have my U.S. House rep. Uh, which is, it was Dean Phillips. I don't think it's going to be Dean Phillips anymore. Uh, Then, of course, local house, local Senate, uh, any kind of municipal races, tons of judges. You want people to sit there with a pen and paper and jot this down and then put it into a bag, just a grocery bag, and then somebody's going to sit there and pull out the 40 or so races you've scribbled your chicken writing on and try to do it that way. Okay, you're idiots. You're all idiots. This idea that this is something, and their whole thing is, we had voter ID. You couldn't get in here without your voter ID. And 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 this is, you know, this is ba- paper ballots. Clearly, anyone, first of all, looking at the video, anyone could have jammed as many ballots in there as they wanted to. This guy wasn't really looking. He was just opening the bag and passing it around and people were coming in and jamming ballots in there. That aside, your problem is a, someone fills out a a form that's got, you've got to fill in the circle and you go and insert it into a machine that just counts the circles. And then it stores those securely until they can review them and make sure they're going out. That that system is inferior to what could, I'll just point out the obvious. It's not like there's only one high V bag. <laughs> there could already be a high V bag full of ballots there. And all of a sudden this guy takes those ballots, goes under the table because you sure haven't kept track of where they are. It goes under the table. Someone comes up with the other bag, and guess what? We got completely different ballots. Nikki Haley wasn't as strong as we thought she was. 
Mind you, these are the same Republicans that scream about ballot integrity who convinced convinced Donald Trump was was screwed in the 2020 election. But yet every Republican that won on those somehow inferior Trump ballots, well, those were all legit because the people behind this, they knew to vote for some of the Republicans so that they could drive us off the track. We got them, though. Yeah, you got something. Chicago, have a good one. Minneapolis, St. Paul, hour two up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt back in studio. Brett here. Patrick here as well. Hi, Brett. How are we? All right. We got the full crew in today. Been a little while since we've had the three of us in. Couldn't have timed this better, man. I I couldn't couldn't time being out of town better. It was, it looked looked nasty here. Yeah. Yeah, It looked horrible up here. But uh, yeah, I was not here. I was down there. I was uh, eating shrimp and oysters and and enjoying Southern cuisine and, you know, know, the the shocking amount of flowers blossoming everywhere down there. It, It was, it was a good time. I, it just, it was my mom's 80th birthday, but we couldn't be down there in, in December. Um, because just with the holidays, it was just too busy. So we all decided to go down MLK weekend. That's why we did that. A good weekend to do it with the cold weather. I I don't blame you for getting out in this. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't do much outside myself this weekend. Well, it's, it's, (laughs) my dog would go out, turn around, come back in. Not, not pleasant. Uh, I, I, I was going to something light and pithy. But uh, we got to talk, first of all, uh, breaking news, and it is broken. Pat Garofalo has decided he's not going to run for re-election in the Minnesota House of Representatives. Now, Garofalo and I have occasionally butted heads on social media, but he clearly in the last five years or so, as his district has moved more and more into the blue column, it's it's not it is still a purple a very purple district and it probably is probably a toss up district but it's not one of those districts it's not like one of the you know ZZ flop up there where you know you could run a potato with an R and his name is going to win he's had to, he he has indeed at times said some very logical and rational things over the last few years as he has become more and more moderate in realizing that that's what's going to win. But now I think I'm taking this wholeheartedly. I, I'm sure he has a reason why he wants to, and there might be a job offer. It could be something like that. I don't know what. But my, I'm taking this whole, wholeheartedly as, you know what, that he's, he's seeing the writing on the wall, that his district is starting to become too blue for him to possibly win. Well, if you are becoming more of a moderate Republican, what home do you have in the current Republican <laughs> Party anyways? Yeah. you got to go along with these clowns. You know, you, all you have to remember is uh, who is there, who is the governor candidate for them? Um, the loon ball, uh, Jensen, the, Jensen. Thank you. Jensen had, it was his bill to basically give insulin to diabetics in the state. And they made him vote against his own bill oh, just yeah. to kill it. So that's all you need to know about the Republican party. There is no, there's no middle ground. There's no, that's whenever I hear some of these people, like the, the one person who's going to run, uh, in the third district, I, I, I was reading that story about the the moderate Republican who wants to give an idea. It's like, okay, are you going to vow that you're going to stand up for women's rights? I don't want to go on the record on anything right now. Oh, okay, I get you. Yeah, because you can't. You, you can't do that. You kind of listen to how these people talk and you read between the lines a little bit. Like the lady out, uh, I think she represents Maple Grove. I mean, so not like, like you said, not ZZ Flop, hard red, but... 
you kind of read between the lines and say, I may not necessarily agree with MAGA, but I would gladly accept any MAGA rule in this state. Well, it's it's I they don't want to do that because they're afraid of of kind of getting in the way their own way at this point. That's that's for sure. Uh, so I got to bring up something, though, with another one. Speaking of MAGA, speaking of MAGA. So I uh, made a post just while I was out. I just wanted to make a post. And, and, and it was in response to the amount of Republicans who come to Trump's defense with his trolling when he when he says these things about, I want to be a dictator. And then I say, well, he's saying that, but all he's doing is trolling other people. And these are religious people defending this. And I'm like, I, so I made this post. It's amazing to me how many Trump evangelicals think trolling is behavior Jesus would approve of. Funny story, he wouldn't. He'd actually be very critical of people who did it. And I stand by that. I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus. He was not a guy that would have three Twitter handles ripping on people and and being a troll. Don't you remember sarcastic Jesus all the oh, time? Yeah. I, was just, I didn't really mean what I said. I was just joking and trolling. The Gospel of Chandler, you mean? Yes. Oh, I remember the Gospel of the Chandler. The old jokester. Uh, no. So... I didn't think it was going to be that big. One of the stupidest Republicans in the state is Walter Hudson, and he is brick dumb. I uh, I am kind of surprised at how how how. Okay, I'm just going to read his response to me. God trolled Job. Huh? It's in context relationship to make an action appropriate or inappropriate. It matters who's speaking to whom, what is being said, and why. For instance, a patriot calling a commie who hates America. Appropriate. Uh, Walter Jackass, Republican Jackass, Representative Jackass. I'm sorry, I got to get the right. Representative Jackass. If you're talking about me, a disabled military veteran that hates America, go F yourself, you jackass, courtesy of me. And if you need help, I can help you with that. I'd be happy to, as a veteran of the U.S. Army, you punk. Now, that being said, God trolled Job. Now, there's a backside to this that I want to prepare you for. Everyone get buckled in, okay? Quick little story. Uh, you know, religious disclaimer, you do or don't do whatever it is you do or don't want to do. All right? Job, the story of Job is basically God and Satan get into this discussion about, oh, can we punish someone and we still be loyal, that sort of thing. You know, wipes out his kids, all of his, 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 his flocks and his workers, all these things. Boom. It's not about this. It's basically putting him through trials to to see if he would still be, you know, a, a, a good servant of God. That's kind of what the whole thing with Job is. It wasn't like, you suck on Twitter. I mean, that God wasn't doing that. And no, even though Jesus, and once again, you are Christian, you're not, you know, just celebrating the Old Testament, the New Testament funny story first the six letters of christianity christ jesus christ matters to christians or it should jesus clearly was not on for trolling you implying that god is somehow up and on twitter and on blue sky and all these things uh you're an idiot but then it dawned on me did walter hudson compare himself to god God troll Job. I'm trolling you. I'm just like God. Holy God. 
Okay, did you just compare? He did. He, in this tweet, compared himself to doing what God would. I am just like God trolling people on Twitter. You gotta be. Am I missing that? Yeah, that's uh, that's quite the comparison. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't. Comparison. I mean, I, I, you know, some people uh, have have said I look like my brother. I don't think any people's like, you know, who you remind me of? God. And I don't well, think that's pretty high expectations. If you're, <laughs> you compared yourself to God. I think we're done here because if you're at that point, you're delusional, man. You're you're delusional, and no. You you completely and completely and totally do not even understand. Your defense is the book of Job. You clearly haven't read that, let alone the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which would clear up a lot of your Christian faith. But you compared yourself to God. Wow, I'm you're you're just like God when you sit there and tr- Twitter troll. And does, do the churches understand why people are not going to church anymore? This, 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 this is why people are not going to churches anymore. Because this is who are the people that are screaming they're the most Christian of us all. This! Trolling has never been an appealing characteristic. Like, <laughs> even if you go pre-social media days, no one liked people messaging on message boards. Just, you know. Bad faith. Posts, yeah. I, I was I was reading the Gospel of catfishing, and uh, yeah. you know, it just you know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> come on, man, what are you? You are cuckoo for cocoa puffs, Walt. Uh, good luck with all that, God. <laughs> I can see God up there going, whoa, 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 no, 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 oh, no, no, no. That's uh, there are two people having discussion here. Let's make sure we understand who's more like who. Uh, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. A big salute to our friends over at the Minnesota Reformer, who are their fourth anniversary. Fourth anniversary, indeed. Yeah, hard to believe it's been since 2020 when they started up. And um, as we talked about, we'll get on later in the interview, it's so important to keep supporting organizations like that when oftentimes you see media groups that are bought by hedge fund companies that... When it comes to investigator reporting, eh, we don't really have the funds or the resources to do that. But they do that at the Minnesota Reformer, and we've always appreciated that. And we got lots to talk about today, including uh, we'll get Patrick's thoughts on the Iowa caucuses. And we'll also talk about Dina Winter watching the uh, Liz Collin documentary, <laughs> The Fall of Minneapolis. <laughs> oh, God. If you've not read that article, I'll, I'll repost that again. Dina, you, you I salute your service. That is just, it's exactly what you thought it would be. Exactly what you thought it would be. Patrick Cool again. Uh, this is uh, with, uh, of course, Brett right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Kulikan, as we are going to be chatting about some of the stories they worked on, as well as the fact that, did you know, this is the four-year anniversary of the Minnesota Reformer. They've been around four years doing all the great reporting here in Minnesota politics. We'll be chatting a little bit about that as well and what to look forward to in the future and some of the favorite stories that uh, they've been covering over the years over at the Minnesota Reformer. But before we get to all of that, let's welcome in Patrick Kulikan back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for coming back on. Always a pleasure. 
Absolutely. So before we dive into some of the Minnesota stories, I got to first off get your thoughts on what happened in the Iowa caucuses last night. Any big surprises on your end with Donald Trump getting a little over 50% of the vote and running very strong in rural Iowa counties, which I guess is kind of similar to Minnesota, where we have lots of very rural, obviously Midwestern counties. So really any big surprise that Trump ran so strongly last night in Iowa? I don't think so. I think uh, everyone uh, thought that he would uh, have a strong showing, uh, and he did. I think that's a a big margin for the Iowa caucus uh, compared to previous uh, uh, contests. Uh, I I think it's worth noting, though, that, you know, to only get 51 percent when he's running essentially as the incumbent, uh, I think that shows uh, some weakness, as well as the fact that uh, the caucus represents just a small uh, portion of the Iowa electorate, um, or even the Republican electorate in Iowa. Um, you could blame a little bit on the weather, but Iowans are, uh, like Minnesotans, are famously tough um, uh, about getting out on a caucus night no matter the weather in the middle of winter. So um, so I think that it's a strong showing for him. It's especially weak showing uh, for Nikki Haley. Uh, I think she needed to uh, to come in second to be the, the not Trump, uh, although I think in the end all that uh, it doesn't really matter because he's he's going to be the nominee. It's just a question of whether or not his, he can maintain his health. Um, but uh, insofar as there was some kind of a shot for somebody else, uh, Nikki Haley uh, needed to finish, I think, uh, better than she did. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, but certainly it looks like uh, Donald Trump um, will be the nominee at this point. Well, let's move along now and talk about some of our local Minnesota political stories that you guys have been working on. And I want to start off with something that, well, Dina Winter had a chance to write about because she saw the new documentary that Liz Collin, former WCCO and now with Alpha News, I believe, journalist, recently put out titled The Fall of Minneapolis. And this is a video that I believe has a ton of views on YouTube, something like over 5 million. So lots of people in that uh, kind of right-wing political sphere are definitely checking this thing out. So Dina Winter decided to take a look and see what this whole documentary is all about. And, well, to really no one's surprise, there are, well, at best, a lot of misleading claims that are made in this documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, which has to do with the aftermath of the uh, Derek Chauvin trial and then also what happened after with the protests and so forth. So you get the idea of what the documentary is largely about. So there were a lot of, well, as I said, I guess at best, Patrick, misleading claims. But let's walk through some of these, because what were some that jumped out at you? Because there were lots to me as I read through Dina's column, whether it was the fact that they tried to say, well, George Floyd has always been on drugs. He's had problems with these before and therefore should be almost exonerated. What were some of the other highlights or some of the other claims that were made in this documentary that were largely debunked by Dina in her reporting? I I think the key point here is that the documentary makes uh, the claim, um, in, in part just to inflate its own value, um, that there's these all that it has all these bombshell uh, uh, re- bombshell facts that were somehow covered up or uh, never come to light. Um, and the reality is that all she's doing, at least in the part of the documentary regarding Derek Chauvin's uh, guilt or innocence, is she's just kind of rehashing what his defense was at trial. I mean, this is not none of this is uh, is particularly new. Um, and in fact, the jurors are heard a lot of this evidence. And it really just comes down to whether or not uh, whether or not Chauvin 
uh, or excuse me, whether or not George Floyd uh, died because of his pre-existing health problems uh, and or his drug use, um, or did he die uh, because he was suffocated um, by that, uh, by a, what's, what's called a positional asphyxiation, uh, which was uh, due to the uh, force used by Derek Chauvin uh, when he was kneeling on his, on his neck for nine minutes. And, um, you know, this, uh, to me, the, the, the key uh, testa, testimony in the trial uh, was by a guy named Dr. Tobin. Um, he's a Chicago, he's, he's written with, with one medical journal called the, the Bible of um, Pulmonary um, Health. And, uh, and he explained to the jury, and I think to the broader public, or those of us who were paying attention, um, and Dean happened to be in the courtroom that day when, he, uh, when, when Martin Tobin testified, um, that uh, the the fact that Floyd was handcuffed face down on the pavement, and that his left knee, that Chauvin's left knee was was putting pressure in that neck area, and you know he and and Tobin in the courtroom he points out these mom- these key moments, including at one point Floyd's uh, his leg jerked backwards, which was an involuntary reaction um, because he had a low level of oxygen going to the brain. That's what Tobin testified. And then, he, and then Tobin sort of points out in the video that moment when uh, when he dies, and um, and it's due to suffocation. And um, so that was just a, a key point for me was that uh, we've heard all this before, and um, we've heard expert testimony on how uh, Floyd uh, Floyd's death was in fact a homicide, um, and and so that was a, a big one for me. Um, you know, and then there's uh, regarding the, the, there's a big part of the film is is what happened after the the aftermath, and um, you know uh, I don't think there's any disagreement that the 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 city, the state uh, handled badly the the aftermath and allowed uh, what had been demonstrations to turn into rioting and all the destruction of uh buildings and uh, all the mayhem um some of it was caused by just for lack of a better word hooligans um but in any case i don't think anybody's arguing that there there was uh there weren't serious uh, mistakes made by a state and, and local officials with regards to the aftermath um but there's these claims that somehow uh they did you know they they allowed the rioting to take place because it served some political end and it's like I have no idea where that that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, ri- the rioting, the burning of buildings, this is not a good story for for Mayor Fry or for for Governor Tim Walls. Um, and and the idea that that police officers were standing down. Well, I mean, there's, we have lots of people who have um, permanent permanent scars, including blindness and in one eye because they were shot by rubber bullets. Uh, one of our own reporters was shot by a rubber bullet. Um, so, you know, that just doesn't, uh, it's just not true that they were standing down or ordered to stand down. Um, so this documentary has, uh, all kinds of, uh, factually misleading, um, assertions and, and Dina did a great job of, of sitting down and God love her watching it over a weekend. And, and, and I think I would just want to point out also that, that Dina was in that, she covered the trial every single day, and I mean, and she was reporting on that on the trial leading up to it. She was there every day covering it for for both the Wall Street Journal and the Reformer, 
Um, she covered, uh, you know, as, as well as uh, some of what some of the aftermath uh, of the of the murder. Uh, um, and so you, there, there's nobody, uh, I don't think, on earth that I'd want more to be doing a, a story about this documentary than Dina. And I'm, I'm so glad that she did. Yeah, I'm glad she walked. She was able to watch that as well and break down some of these claims because uh, I'll admit I have not watched the documentary myself and I'm probably not going to be planning on doing that anytime soon. But it just seems to me that, as he said, it kind of follows the whole Derek Shalvin defense when they're at least on that part of the documentary before they get into the protests that happened after. But it seems like a lot of this is a lot of the claims that Liz Collin makes in this documentary are kind of kernels of truth that, well, kind of fall apart from there. Like, for instance, you look at these claims that she makes about the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, Examiner where he said, well, asphyxia was not part of the cause of death. Well, that's a little bit of a misleading claim. And I think if someone if someone generally out there in the public has not really been following this trial or the aftermath of what happened with the murder of George Floyd, following that news story very closely, I could see how it would be easy to watch this documentary and say, well, wait, why isn't the media covering these types of stories and so on and so on, where you can take these kernels of truth and then kind of have them fall apart from there almost. Yeah. It's just another example of how, um, you know, people are, the internet has broken American society people are, are not media uh, savvy um, and they're not good media consumers. And so they, they see something um, that would seem to, uh, you know, make what would seem to be good points about uh, Floyd's death and uh, given his drug use and his prior uh, health issues um, and, and not knowing because they didn't pay that much attention to the trial that all of this was aired in open court. And um, and a lot of it was uh, refuted and uh, it certainly and, and the jury uh, made their decision. Uh, the, the appeals have all failed. Um, so uh, the, the idea that this is uh, some sort of bombshell um, work of journalism is just uh, it's just not. And important to point out as well, uh, keep in mind that Dina Winter, who wrote the column, was in the trial, was able to watch the trial as well. As we have mentioned a few times during our interview, she was reporting on it as well. So she's very familiar with what happened with this thing. And I think as she even wrote in the column, she didn't recall seeing Liz Collin ever attending the trial or doing much reporting on that either. So interesting uh, note about that as well want to move on to another story that you guys are working on over at the Minnesota Reformer, and that has to do with the FBI investigating, well, several cheating allegations that plagued the DFL endorsement process for city council races in Minneapolis. If you might remember, the DFL endorsement conventions for two Minneapolis wards ended up getting canceled last year because of allegations of phony delegates. And in fact, one convention, I believe over in Ward 10, Uh, descended into a brawl, which we talked a little bit about last year. So the FBI is investigating what's been happening with this whole endorsement process. So I guess my question to you is, why is the FBI interested in something that's a very local issue? Because oftentimes you think of the FBI and you think about something that happens across states or at the national level, not so much at the local level with the political party endorsing candidates. So do we know exactly what the DF or excuse me, what the FBI is looking for in this case or who they're interviewing, who they're talking to, why and so forth? Well, Dina talked to a couple of sources uh, who uh, asked to remain anonymous. And in one case, uh, the source said that 
the, the source said that the FBI specifically asked them not to talk to the media. Uh, the person did so talk to us anyway. Um, and uh, but anyway, these both these folks say they were interviewed by the FBI about the uh, irregularity irregularities. Uh, I think we used the word chicanery at uh, some of the DFL um, uh, endorsing conventions where uh, it looks like um, based on our, our reporting that some of the uh, delegates that were the candidates were claiming were, were phony. Um, and, uh, and, and again, yeah, we, you and I talked about the, the problems that were, uh, that a few of these conventions had last year. Uh, and so the, yeah, the, the question I had, I, I think similar to what your, your question is like, well, what is the, what is the crime here? Um, you know, not to say that, uh, some tomfoolery at a, at a DFL convention, uh, is okay, but I also think it's a little bit par for the course. But um, lawyers that we talk to, election lawyers, they seem to think the the FBI might be looking at possible violations of the Voting Rights Act, um, and um, and potentially the f- fraud, essentially. And and it is indeed, um, if they were able to prove it, it, it would seem to be fraudulent, uh, the fraudulent gathering of of delegates. Um, but at this point, we don't don't know a whole lot um, because obviously the feds uh, don't talk much. Um, we know that there was a previous uh, grand jury around uh, voting uh, fraud, which is very different than than this situation. Um, and there was a perjury uh, conviction that they attained obtained uh, last year. Excuse me, two years ago. Um, but. Uh, this would seem to be a different situation um, because it's not actual election fraud per se. It didn't happen on election day or a primary day. Uh, so we'll just have to, uh, I think, wait and see um, to see uh, wh- what direction the feds are moving in uh, uh, on this situation. Well, the idea of voter lists strikes me as being interesting, too, because what's key when you have these types of endorsement conventions, especially in large cities where typically it's only one party that usually ends up winning the Democratic Party, is that these voter lists are very key that the endorsed candidate gets because you get, well, a list of voters and their contacts, which can be very key towards campaigning in the general election. But FBI agents say this is ripe for fraud. So I'm kind of curious about this, too. Or would they be concerned about someone possibly using these voter lists for other purposes, maybe selling them or something like that? Because I, I could see how that would be a key case where if you're all of a sudden having all these names accessible by someone and used for, well, not good purposes, that could certainly draw the attention as well of the feds. Could. Uh, my, the way I read this was that uh, if you fraudulently you would be fraudulently obtaining the voter list, um, and that would be the crime, um, which would certainly be interesting. I don't, you know, I don't think we've seen that necessarily, but I, I wonder if the feds, having done the the grand jury over uh, actual voter fraud, um, they just think that the uh, the DFL uh, that there's some stuff going on um, in the the in the city with respect to voting um, and they're kind of going, uh, looking far and wide for it. 
Well, one last thing to bring up for you before we wrap things up, and that has to do with the fact that we are at the four-year anniversary of the Minnesota Reformer. Hard to believe how fast time flies, uh, going back to January 2020 when uh, the Reformer first came out. So during these first four years, any specific stories you'd like to highlight, stories you'd like to talk about, or encourage people to continue supporting the Minnesota Reformer? Because, man, it feels like it was just yesterday. It was only four years ago in 2020. Yeah, it's been a really fun uh, and and uh, I think productive uh, four years, and I owe uh, all of it to um, both the really talented staff who work so hard, um, and then also our, our growing community of supporters. Uh, without whom we couldn't couldn't do the work. But um, you know, I, I what what we had sought to do uh, was to to be a, a news outlet that. Uh, came at stories with a bit of a different perspective. And then also uh, we were going to really aggressively chase uh, scoops. And, you know, I think if you look at uh, that four-year history, uh, I hope that we've been able to do that. Um, and just, you know, my some of my favorite examples, I mean, certainly Dean is reporting on Minneapolis Police Department, but also uh, Max and, and a, a guy named Tony Webster wrote a, a big story for us called uh, the bad cops, and it was about the uh, the discipline problems in the Minneapolis Police Department and, the, and their failure to deal with them. Um, certainly, Dean is reporting on uh, 3M and chemical contamination in the Eastern Metro, uh, and uh, you know, the list goes on of stories. I think that um, that I'm proud of, and I think our staff ought to be proud of it. So I just hope that uh, listeners will continue to uh, check us out. I like what you just said, too, about approaching scoops and making sure you're going after those, because oftentimes in today's media environment, especially when you're talking about local print or even online publications, well, oftentimes those types of publications are owned by a hedge fund, where if you want to go do that type of reporting, well, we quite don't have the funds to be able to do that. Or it's just easier to pull something from the wire service, where you guys are out there doing the actual legwork of uh, doing journalism, which is very, very key in today's media environment, when so many different options outlets are being gobbled up by hedge fund companies and largely, well, not able to do a lot of reporting. Yeah, we're truly independent. Nobody's telling us uh, what we should be reporting. Uh, And so we're just going to follow what we think are uh, interesting stories, um, very often about uh, the influence of of rich and powerful people and and how it impacts uh, regular people. Well, make sure you go and continue supporting the Minnesota Reformer. Again, minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Kulikan, with his usual Tuesday visit. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM950. AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Of course, it's time for our Requiem for the Vikings for the entire damn season. Michael Broadcorp is kind enough to join us. Of course, he's got his great podcast. He is an expert in uh, politics from the Republican side here in the state of Minnesota, and he's also a huge fan of the Vikings. He's been with us all season long, and he's kind enough to join us today. Hi, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm glad we had the time to wait a week because of the the, the t- time I took off. I'm glad we were we we're doing it today because 
it it is nice to get a little time between that final game against at Detroit and and today. It it doesn't you know I it doesn't feel as dirty. How about I say it like that? <laughs> That's a great way. I, I, you know, misery does love company. It was nice to have a little separation. And I always, as you know, Max, I'm a glass half full guy. I always like to be positive. And so it's good to have a little bit of separation between when I have to discuss it because I get to be a little bit more optimistic about the conversation. Vikings social media, uh, Vikings fans on social media, the, the, the great debate that started in the last week is the Kirk Cousins question. Um, that, that do, you, do you keep him? Do you sign someone else? I mean, if you're going with someone in the draft, you're looking at a, a multi-year project. Uh, if you're signing someone else, you already have a system in place. I am I am interested in finding out what your thoughts are because once again, this is going to be the big question that hangs over this team until it's decided one way or the other. Well, let me start off by saying there's some again some gossip uh, on social media about Russell Wilson, uh, the Broncos, things like that. I'm going to just say to you, I am still of the opinion that Cousins is the way to go. It just is what I think this franchise needs right now, just to kind of stabilize it a bit. I think the general consensus amongst all kind of everyone that I've been listening to and following, what the Vikings need to tackle first is that quarterback position. And I think that if Cousins comes back, is in a position to be healthy and to perform where he was, um, we're looking at an entirely different season. I absolutely believe the Vikings make the playoffs It's Cousins. Cousins is is there. I think the Vikings are in a strong position, and so while it was a while it was a very very ugly season in terms of the roller coaster of, of emotions and all that type of stuff, I think stabilizing that position, I think going with Cousins is where they need to go. I you want to know the truth? I agree with you, and I come at it from the the logic point of view that if, okay, if you bring in now Russell Wilson, I think you and I both are like okay, no. Uh, but say there yeah. was there there was a top notch quarterback that was available, and you bring them in. Your system is right now set up for Cousins and his style of QBing. That means you you are looking at a, a major overhaul, and, and a good quarterback can deal with what he's got. But it's still going to you're going to have to some shift some things around. You're going to have to change some things around. If you go with a rookie out of the draft, I mean, we just saw with the, the three-headed monster that was our quarterback core on the last few weeks of the season that even with good receivers like Jefferson and Addison out there, it, it doesn't really matter if the quarterback can't get the ball to them. And so I, I think that, you know, if Cousins, and, the, and here's the big stipulation, you know, obviously he has to go through the health protocol. If he comes on out, they say, yep, he's healed. He can do it. I I just can't think of a better – I mean, you're still designed for Kirk Cousins to run that team. It doesn't mean – I mean, it obviously wakes you up and saying within two, three years we have to have a different guy in here. But I I, I still am of the mindset if, if he's healthy, Cousins is the path of least resistance. Correct. You said it better than I did, and that's where I think we need to go. That's legitimately where I think we go. And I think I think we've been fair throughout the season. Once Cousin went down, we looked at it a variety of scenarios. But I just think this is the most the most realistic and also credible path for how the Vikings resolve this quarterback um, issue that they need to deal with coming into this postseason. You also have to deal with the running back situation because you pretty much look at the remaining teams left in the playoffs. They've got good running games, and you've got a non-existent one. I would much rather 
look at trying to get a running back because there's a decent chance a running back might fall to you. The, the the second or third best running back might fall to you at your draft position as opposed to a quarterback. And I think that that, you know, it's uh, that that running game is a mess and they've got to fix that as well. No, you're no, you're absolutely right. That's one of the one of the needs also that the Vikings need to fill. They just they just haven't had, you know, that running back position, um there, there wasn't uh it just wasn't a good season to fill that. You know, Todd Chandler um was just inconsistent this season. And we have to figure out what they're going to do in that position. We haven't had a good fill in that spot since. I mean, this is the first season with Dalvin Cook on, and we haven't been able to fill that position with the consistency that we've had before. So those are those are big shoes to fill. Those are big spots to fill uh, in the offensive package is both the quarterback and the running back position where they need to focus. Uh, we are in the playoffs. So I'm going to get your thoughts here. I mean, okay, the, well, the, we're not in the playoffs. No, we're not. We're watching the playoffs. <laughs> we are. We are. We are mere observers. Uh, That's right. The, the 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 biggest thing I noticed in that first weekend of playoff games was the narrative the NFL has sold us that by far the toughest, the meanest, the hardest division in football, the NFC East, was absolute garbage. And by all means, the NFC North is probably the best division that is at least playing right now because both the Packers and the Lions did win. Uh, yes, uh, on uh, the weekend, yeah, they did, they did. And and I and I have to say this, um, boy, is my blood boiling about the Green Bay Packers. Um, I can let the lot. I said before, and I said it on your your show, Matt, that the Lions I consider to be the most dangerous team in the playoffs right now. Um, I got to tell you something. The Buccaneers uh, have shown some real life by knocking off the Eagles, which was not a small task. But boy, oh boy, those those pesky Packers just continue to find ways to survive. And here's if I just may go on a little bit of a, a rant about the Packers. They're the youngest Please. team right now in the playoffs. <laughs> they're, they're the youngest team in the playoffs right now, so they're they're not going anywhere for a while. They got Jordan Love, and and now they've locked themselves in to another quarterback position. I mean, what what what, he, what the Packers did to the Cowboys was just quick was just was just astounding, and you could just see even from the distance Jerry Jones just getting more and more agitated during that game went on. And, and I'm sorry, I can share the frustration as a Vikings fan. What is like to sit there and watch the Packers just run over you? But boy, the Packers once again, my hatred of them comes from their continued success. Uh-huh. Particularly at that quarterback position, uh, Jordan Love is not as good as he looks. Dak Prescott looked worse than he was. So let's you know before yes. before we start elevating them up, you know, because there has been a few people that are like they've got the next MVP for the next twenty years. Oh please, uh, they're going to get annihilated by the San Francisco 49ers. And I mean, I, well, I, mean, let's I hope so. I, I just cannot see that game being even close. I mean, that the 49ers team is 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 very legit. Uh, and and I think yeah, by the means Tampa Detroit's gonna be a fun game on the AFC side. Baltimore hosts Houston. I can't see them not winning that game. And then the the most fun game is this Kansas City at Buffalo game. I think that's gonna be a hoot. That's right. And just to go back to the Packers game for a second, I was in Lambeau a year ago yes. when Aaron Rodgers threw his last pass, and I listened as my wife and I were driving back from Green Bay. We were listening to the to the commentary on air. The people just just being very frustrated about 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 Rogers and potentially him leaving, and also can, a lot of concerns and questions about where Jordan Love is going to be. I don't think 
that a lot of people thought that that the Packers could go into 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 Dallas with they've had such a strong record at home this past season. Um, they have been a little bit of there has been a little bit of curse in the playoffs, but putting up that amount of points, nearly fifty points against the Cowboys, was no small feat. And so, I do think that San Francisco is a strong team. We'll see what happens uh, on. We'll see what happens this weekend. But I got to tell you, um, the, my concern is that my frustration with the Packers is only going to grow <laughs> because I, I just think that they're continuing in that quarterback position. Boy, oh boy, they're lucky out at that quarterback position. D- Dallas didn't adjust, and I mean, I, I and once they got down, they got frustrated, they got angry, and they didn't adjust. I mean, it, it's it, it, McCarthy. I, I think should probably be let go down there. Uh, that being said, okay, so really quick because we'll, the next time we'll talk to you about football is around the Super Bowl. So, who, what is the Super Bowl matchup in your mind going to be? I think there's a good chance that it could be. Uh, I think it's going to be either the Lions or the 49ers. and I think it's going to be most likely the Ravens or the R- R- Ravens or the Chiefs. Okay. Uh, I think I think it's I think there's a very likely if I was I think it could be Ravens 49ers boy that would be a great Super Bowl but my goodness if the Packers make it in uh, you might not be speaking to me that week. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so give me all right, give me your Super Bowl matchup. Just I'm going to put you on the spot a Super Bowl matchup and then who's the, who's the team that's going to win it in right now and we'll we'll go we'll go with this up to after the Super Bowl. Ravens 49ers Ravens win. All right, I I'm with you. I just I think those two teams are just better than everyone else, and I agree. I think the Ravens. I think the Ravens are a good team, and uh, they they with, with Jackson they they taught him to stop worrying about his fantasy football stats and start trying to win games. And guess what? All of a sudden they're they are the powerhouse that they always thought they were going to be with him. So I think it's going to be the Baltimore Ravens winning their second one. Wow, there you fantastic. Go. Well, let's. I'm with you on the Green Bay. All right, since I got you, and we just had the Iowa caucus yesterday, um, you, you just your, I mean, it is such a, it's not a bellwether. It's a, you know, it's 56,000 Republicans in Iowa. It's, you know, it, it's a relatively small turnout. It's a caucus style. Yet, you know, Donald Trump does win. He does win handily down there. Uh, I think that has far more to do with his competition than the popularity of Trump, though. I, I really do think that, you know, Nikki Haley and DeSantis are just not resonating as much as is, you know, candidates have in the past. Correct. I will say to you that Trump, I have been saying for quite some time, I've been raising this concern since nearly since since last year, raising the concern that I believe that it was going to be Trump, that it was going to be Trump that won this. And I think that was the re- the reality that hit last night. I think he's a runaway train right now. I don't think there's anything. And I say that as someone who didn't support him in 16 and 20. And so I don't want it to be the case, but that's where I think it is. And I think last night was a, was a reality, a splash of cold water uh, in, in the uh, faces of some people who have who've questioned whether he can do that. I just think that it's going to be Trump. And I was surprised. I was not surprised that he won. I was surprised that he got over 50%. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised by the margin that he had over DeSantis. That was the largest win in the, I think, on the Republican side in Iowa caucus history. Yes, it was. Donald Trump's victory last night. And so that can't be, that can't be overlooked. Now, the other thing I would say is if somebody would have told me last week that Donald Trump would have won 98 of the 99 counties, 
uh, in the state of Iowa. I, I would have been a little surprised by that margin, but I still think it's just the, where the state of the race is. Donald Trump is the clear front runner to win the nomination. And I would say right now, what Republicans should be looking at right now is they should be focused less on the nomination schedule and more on the criminal schedule because it's, that's going to have more of an impact in the race right now is mapping out these things because I don't know how that stops. I don't know how you stop that momentum. And this is, this is a situation, Matt, that, that you know happened in 16, uh, that, that people kept saying, look, people are going to wake up. People are, this, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. The trajectory is the same. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's, Donald Trump won a cross section of Iowa that when I saw some initial counties come in, I said to someone, I said, look, I said, you could call it for Trump right now. And a few minutes later, some outlets did, which is a, which is a different story in and of itself. But the, the, the pockets of strength where he had, where he gained in terms of where he was in 16, this race, Donald Trump has more strength right now than he had in 16. He is running like he is. He's running like he's an, like he's an incumbent, like he's an incumbent. That's in essence how he's running. And that's, that's very significant and very problematic for anyone who's running against him right now. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is that what the, the only hurdles that I think are going to be put in his place is what happens when these criminal trials start to happen and if he faces a conviction. Where does that start to balance some things out? Uh, I think Nikki Haley, DeSantis, I think, is done. I just don't see how his path at this point. Nikki Haley, of course, South Carolina coming in third. I was just down there, and I talked to some Republicans in the most most Democratic-leaning district, the Nancy, uh, Nancy Mace district down there. And even though that's Nikki Haley's dist- state of the, and once again, non-scientific at all, half the people I talked to who are, who are Republicans have said that they're voting for Trump over Nikki Haley. And, and I, and I, and I just say, I mean, it might get close, but I think if, if Trump beats Nikki Haley in South Carolina, then officially it is over because there's just no other way that this is going to happen. Correct. And one of the things that people need to remember that this is, and this happens sometimes, it's not Nikki Haley's, it's not Nikki Haley, South Carolina. It's not where she's just coming from. And, And that happens sometimes, you know, it happens sometimes when there's an expectation that people win these home states that they can put them over the top, and that's just not how it happens. Let's remember, Al Gore lost the state of Tennessee in 2000. Had he won his home state, he would have been president of the United States. And so Nikki Haley, uh, it's not a, it, people shouldn't be banking on Nikki Haley to come out on top in South Carolina. I think based on the polls, I think most people would be surprised. I think what she needs to do is she needs to have a very, very strong showing in New Hampshire and then start to build some momentum. The reality is this, is that the only candidate that I think has a, that can run the full cycle and go from race to race, go from contest to contest, caucus to primary all across the country is the former president. And this New Hampshire is, is, is going to be a spot where she's going to have, uh, have to have a strong stand a week from today, Matt, this time a week from now, uh, this race could, could ostensibly be much more farther along with Trump. We've only, so far, only 40 delegates have been allocated. Trump's only got 20. I think there's 22 in New Hampshire. So very early stages, not a lot of delegates, but this could be over relatively quickly. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and I don't think Dean Phillips is going to last past New Hampshire either, so we're, we're going to be done there. All right, uh, Michael, as always, I'll tell you what, I'll have you on for politics here because we've got to talk about some retirements that are going on here. I'll have you on for politics before too long. Michael Broadcorp, thank you, Michael. I appreciate throughout the season your coverage of the Vikings. And I hope to be back next season, Matt. You will be back. It has been shockingly popular to talk this once in a while. You know, we're, you're back next year, my friend. We, we're doing it again. Thank you, sir. That's all I needed. You got it. Michael Broadcorp, kind enough to join us. We'll take a break. Come on back. Wrap up the show for a Tuesday. It's the Matt McNeil Show on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Talking politics, once again, Garofalo has decided he's retiring. Uh, That's down south of Farmington area. I'm looking at the map when they did the redistricting, and his district was already starting to see prongs of blue going down into it. He has, and once again, I've said this about Garofalo. He clearly has seen that the demographics of his district are changing and he's not tried to be this far right wing guy. He's tried to moderate his positions. And occasionally I have agreed with him on some things. That being said, I think he's realizing that protesting and bellying about the new flag or why isn't everyone watching the Liz Collin video or face masks, you know, I think he's realizing that's not going to fly. And with Klobuchar on this ballot, you're going, you're, I only wonder how much longer it's going to be before we start even seeing ads. Because reminder, there isn't even a Republican challenger that's legitimate to Amy Klobuchar right now. There just isn't one that's got even a chance. At what point does the Republican Party start airing ads that say something to the effect of, you can vote for Amy Klobuchar, but remember to vote Republican as well. Yeah, that's not going to work. Generally does not work too well. Native Roots Radio, I'm awake. That's up next. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see ya.